0: Our passage this morning comes from Psalm chapter 18, verses 1 to 3. The psalmist writes, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we, as your church, are able to gather here this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you that because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can experientially know this psalm to be true for ourselves. That We know that you are our strength and our rock, our deliverer, and the one that we seek refuge in. And thank you more than anything for the salvation that you have provided in him. Father, be with us now as we seek to sit under your word. Would you apply it to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit? It's in your sons and we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You may be seated, folks. How you doing? Great to see you. Um, did you like that hoedown worship set right there? Man, I have to tell you, that is my favorite music, and the fact that they did it this morning, thank you for doing that just for me. Uh, we are going to be in First 1 Samuel. Chapters five and six, we're going to cover both of those chapters today. A few years ago, a trend swept across America that can only be described as the ugly Christmas sweater party. And if you've been to one of these ugly Christmas sweater parties, then you know that the goal is to get as ugly, go on Amazon, go to Target, get as ugly of a Christmas sweater as you can possibly find. The most heinous thing that a human being can wear, go to this party and win the contest, you get the prize, right? And it's fun. That sort of thing is really super fun. But there are, for those of you who are younger and you're just sort of experiencing that, there are people in this room who grew up in the 70s and 80s who got an actual ugly Christmas <laughs> sweater for Christmas. And had to wear it on Christmas Eve because mom said so. Mom just wanted to make grandma happy. If you've ever received a gift that you wanted to give back, (laughs) apparently someone has. Remember those elementary school gift exchanges? Do you remember those? Oh, man, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I distinctly remember in fifth grade that I was sitting in my desk, and everybody had drawn a name, and we had all brought our gifts (laughs) to exchange, and the guy sitting, it was a girl, the girl sitting right next to me opened hers, and it was one of those cool red and white label makers. Like, in the 70s, that was a big deal, right? Like, we didn't have technology. We just had mechanical things. And... So I thought, that is so amazing, and then people around me start opening these fantastic gifts, and there on my desk is this little brick-shaped thing, and I can't wait to open it. And so I tear it open, and I've never been more disappointed because there is a mashed, brick-shaped fruitcake. You know what I mean? Like one of those old 70s mail-order fruitcakes. Which, by the way, was neither fruit nor cake. It didn't have either one of those in it. I looked this up, because I kind of went down the fruitcake rabbit (laughs) hole, but in the 18th century, people were actually pumped, like they were excited to receive or exchange fruitcakes in the 18th century. These little sort of compressed barley mash, raisins, pine nut, throw a little sawdust in there for some pulp. (laughs) And it makes you wonder, if people were excited about that, how bad your diet would have to be if your annual highlight was fruitcake. There's actually a theory, this is no kidding, there is a theory that there is only ever been one fruitcake invented and that it's just been passed around since the (laughs) 1700s. I read that on the internet, that has to be true. And if you don't mind, I'll just get one more thing off my chest about fruitcake. (laughs) When I was growing up in the seventies, if someone said to you, here's your Christmas present, fruitcake, they were basically saying to you, Merry Christmas, I don't really like you. <laughs> so if you've ever received something that you wish you could give back, then you'd know what the Philistines are experiencing in this text today, because no sooner do they get the ark, than they want to re-gift it. And today's text is a sobering warning to avoid false worship. Our main thought today is that the Philistines and the people of Beth Shemesh, and that, those are Israelites in Beth Shemesh, they learn the consequences of false religion, and through their lessons, you and I learn the importance of what it means to actually glorify God in our worship. And that's what we're going to look at today. In chapter five, the story starts out, frankly, just comically, in fact, we're not for the tragedy of it, the whole story is kind of comical. But essentially what they do, as we learned last week, they beat the Israelites. I mean, they killed 30,000 infantrymen, 30,000 soldiers. And then they hauled off the ark to Ashdod, a capital city of Philistia, and then put this sacred object, this ark, in their temple next to their statue, the god Dagon, right? So they do this. Now, when they come back in the morning, Dagon has toppled over face down in front of the ark. Now, you have to understand for the Philistines, this is, this is a bad omen. This is bad because they knew no one was in that temple sanctuary. So they pick it up, they haul it back and put it on its pedestal, put it on its place. The next morning they come, Dagon has fallen again, except this time Dagon's arms and head are broken off. Now, what you need to know is in the ancient world, if you defeated your foe and you captured the king, you would bring him into your court and you would chop his head off. We're going to actually see Samuel do this later to to another king uh, that he commands Saul to capture. You chop his head off or you chop his hands off, or you do both. So now, this was signaling to the Philistines, oh boy, the God of the Hebrews means business. We pick it up in verse 4, only Dagon's torso remained. And that is why still to this day, uh, the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon in Ashdod uh, do not step on Dagon's threshold. And so the Ark of the Covenant now has been brought to Ashdod, and the rest of the story basically is they are getting diseases and cancer, tumors, and there's a, there's a rodent pestilence throughout the land, throughout the five cities of Philistia. And it's miserable. They are miserable. And it says in verse 10, the people of Gath sent the ark of God to Ekron, which is another city. And uh, both Gath and Ekron are cities in Philistia. But when it got there, the Ekronites cried out, they moved the ark of Israel's God to us, to kill us and our people? Thanks a lot. The Akronites called all the Philistine rulers together. They said, send the ark of Israel, uh, Israel's God, away. Let it return to its place so it won't kill us and our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing them. And those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So we... Understand that chapter five is the background to chapter six, what they decide to do in chapter six. And there are a few background items you need to understand. First of all, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, Gaza. Have you heard those words in the news this weekend? (laughs) Like uh, this attack from Gaza on these cities like Ashdod and other places, those cities are still around today in modern Israel. But back then, during this time, they were Philistine strongholds. They were the five cities of Philistia. Dagon, or Dagon, is the god of the Philistines. And the ancient Greeks, writers like Lucian, Theodorus, Horace, uh, describe what they saw when they saw the statue or, or the rebuilt statue. And essentially, what it was, it was a statue about a man's height, about six feet, and it had a man's head, it had a female torso, and a Fish bottom. And so essentially, it it quite literally was an ancient trans mermaid or a merman, (laughs) however you like that. And while that may sound like a joke, that really isn't. That is how they meant it. They, They were just all messed up in their thinking. When a rival tribe defeated you and captured your king, they would not only kill your king, but they would put your idol in their temple. We're going to learn the significance of that soon. Their acceptance of the ark was also an acknowledgement of its power. Remember last week when the ark came by processional into Israelites' camp, and there was such shouting and hollering and excitement in the camp, and the Philistines heard it from a ways away, and they said, a God has entered the camp. And that's how they thought. They thought that God's inhabited objects. And so now they have brought this object into their temple that recognizes the power of the object. They recognize that the Hebrew God has power. And now what they want to do is add the Hebrew God's power to their own. They placed it next to Dagon's statue. And this was a way of saying, this Hebrew God and his object is now in subservience to our God the next chapter. In chapter 6, we see how they resolve it. After seven long, punishing months of misery, they finally come to their satraps and their diviners, and they ask their wise men, what should we do? What do we do about this? And here was their answer, chapter 6, verse 3. They replied, the, the diviners replied, if you send the ark of Israel God's way, of God away, do not send it without an offering. Send, it, send back a guilt offering, and you will be healed. Then the reason his hand hasn't been removed from you will be revealed. Now, what are they talking about here with the guilt offering? In the ancient world, you offered a deity, a trespass offering or a guilt offering in order to appease his anger and his wrath, and that's how they're interpreting God right now. And that guilt offering had to have a couple of things. First of all, that offering had to be costly. It had to be costly. It had to cost you something, which is why they come up with this idea about the gold tumors and mice, right? It also had to represent uh, your affliction. It had to represent that judgment, their judgment against you. Uh, And so we see this right here. They're, They're prescribing that you... Send God a guilt offering. And then they answered, five gold tumors and five gold mice corresponding to the number of the Philistine rulers, since there was one plague for both you and your rulers. Make images of your tumors, very interesting, and of your mice that are destroying the land. So both of these pestilences, the cancer internal and the mice external, eating up their grain storages and also spreading disease. These things need to be represented in these gold items on the cart. So make these images of your tumors and your mice that are destroying the land. Give glory to Israel's God, and perhaps He will stop oppressing you, your gods, and your land. Why harden your hearts as the Egyptians and pharaohs hardened their hearts when He afflicted them. Didn't they send Israel away, and Israel left, so they know the story." The story is, is widespread. They know it. Now, verses 7 through 12, the Philistines conduct a test to determine if their troubles are really the result of divine judgment by sending the ark on a cart with new cows. So, so what they decide to do is say, these cows that have not been yoked, so they have not been trained to carry these burdens in a certain direction Let's see if these cows, these young cows, will actually go to Israel. And in fact, they do. And so we see here several things about false worship in the text that we need to learn. And we need to learn from it so that we can worship God rightly. Number one, false worship happens when God isn't given His rightful place. This is the first mistake of anyone who falsely worships. God is not where He ought to be. We've already seen this form of false religion with Hophni and Phinehas. Remember what they were doing. They were the priests in the temple at Shiloh, and they were corrupted, and they were immoral, and they were stealing from God and stealing from the people. That's false worship. Why? Because God is not in His place. In other words, even though the Ark is in the Holy of Holies, we are not submitted and surrendered to God's rule, to His Word, to His prescription. And here in the story of the Philistines, they are also practicing the same principle of defiling God's sanctuary. After capturing the Ark and bringing it home to Philistia as part of the spoils of war, they placed the Ark in Dagon's temple. Essentially, they desecrated that Ark And also just added it to their trophy case. Here's our trophy of war. How so? Understand that idolatry is first and foremost an act of irreverence and lack of acknowledgement. That's what it is. Whatever form it takes, idolatry is irreverence. It's a failing to revere God. And it's a failing to acknowledge God's place. What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean for you to glorify God in your life? Going back to Genesis chapter one, we see that God creates the universe and the world and everything is properly aligned under his sovereign rule. And here's the pecking order. This is the pecking order. God, creator God, who is before all things and above all things, creates the world. He runs the world. He's the sovereign king. God has two image bearers, male and female. He made them, put them in the garden. Those image bearers, those human beings, they are a royal priesthood. Now, the royal piece of it has to do with their dominion vocation. He sends them out into the world to take dominion over the world, both of them. It's their vocation. But they also are called uh, imagers. In the Hebrew, it's referred to as imagers or image bearers, Right? And so made in the image of God, they do two things. They mediate God's rule and His holiness to creation, and and they represent all of creation, and the glory of creation, back to God. So they are a priesthood. And so here you have God, the sovereign king, the high king, the holy king, His royal priesthood, human beings made in His image, and then everything else under them. All of creation, all of the creaturely things in his world, okay? So that's the right order. And what is sin? Sin is disorder. Sin is interrupting that order. And that's what you're seeing in this text. The ark is not where it ought to be. It's not in the right temple. It's not in the place where it should be. And so these people are just not revering God. They are just not acknowledging His rightful place. Understand that irreverence is failing to honor God or to acknowledge His place in the universe. But it's also failing to revere Him and make sure that God is sovereign over my personal life. And this requires a certain sobriety and alertness in our thinking. We must ever be cognizant and aware of God's rightful place in our lives. We lack urgency and alertness in our worship when we just take God and put him in our trophy case, along with all of our other achievements or interests or goals, which is the opposite of what it means to fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, this is the opposite. It's an irreverence which diminishes his importance. So failure to acknowledge God's supremacy, failing to acknowledge God's supremacy, the Philistines place the ark in the temple of Dagon where it should not be. Let me give you a solid takeaway on this in terms of a principle. We live for his glory by realigning ourselves under his sovereign rule. This is how we glorify God. This is how we live for his glory, by realigning ourselves under his word under His truth, under His rule. Listen, every problem that I have ever faced in my life, every problem that I have ever had is because of this right here. It is is either caused by or exacerbated by the fact that God is not where He ought to be in my life. I am not acknowledging him as sovereign Lord in control of my situation, and I am failing to live according to his prescription." And the Philistines thought that they could just add Yahweh to the rest of their gods, the God of Israel, to their trophy wall, that the God of the universe would be in service to their personal aspirations. Number two, false worship seeks to manipulate God's power for personal gain. So. If the first principle of false worship has to do with God not being in his rightful place, the second principle has to do with manipulating his power for our ends, toward our personal goals. Now, as a Christian, it is vitally important that we understand not only the pecking order and where God belongs, that he is before all things and he is above all things. We must understand that, but it's also vitally important that we understand that living For Him is our goal. Who is living for whom? Is God living for me and my ambitions, or am I living for His? I'm going to give you a couple of passages that I want you to memorize. I want you to memorize at least where they are. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, this is what Paul said. He said, for He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He lavished on us in the Beloved One, that is, Christ. Look carefully at those words. Do we choose God, or did God choose us? Do we bring God before us to serve us, or are we being summoned before God to serve Him as blameless and holy worshipers? Did he predestine us to be fully sufficient in ourselves so that we might live for ourselves? Or did he predestine us to be adopted as his own children for himself? Am I, is my Christian faith the result of my desire so that I can live for my pleasure? Or have I been chosen in accordance with his good pleasure and will? Do I find my satisfaction as we sang in that song, in Christ, in the Lord? in His pleasure, in His will? Am I living for my glory, all the blessings in the heavenly realms? Now, listen, if you read Ephesians chapter 1, this is what you're going to discover, that God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Now, I don't really know what Paul is talking about there, but that sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds exciting. It sounds wonderful. It sounds like a wonderful thing to inherit so, listen, God is for you. God loves you. And God is for the elect. He is for his people. But we are called to live for his glory and his good pleasure. Let me give you another passage that really encapsulates this in one sentence, Romans eleven thirty six. 36. Just remember where this is. This says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What is this passage saying? What's the workflow? Everything that is good that God brings into our life comes from God. It doesn't come from me. This is what it means to acknowledge God's glory, to glorify Him by acknowledging Him. And it doesn't just come from God. It comes through God. He's the means. He's the instrumentation through which He delivers His blessing to us. It comes from Him, through Him, and ultimately everything that comes into my life is ultimately to Him. It is brought in glory to God. And so whenever I understand that God has called me and he has chosen me and that every blessing in my life is because of him and through him and unto him, and I begin to live for his glory and my life is fundamentally oriented around that truth, honestly, it will change the way you live. It changes the way we think about life. Helpful, helpful application principle is: stop inviting God into your story. Stop inviting God into your story. Understand that you've been summoned. you've been brought and invited and introduced into His story, His story of redeeming the world, His story that is unfolding until the end. I can't tell you how many times people have come into my office before they get baptized and sat and told me their testimony, and I say, I want to hear, what is your testimony of the gospel? And I've heard this over the years many, many times. Listen, I I just realized that I just need something in my life and that I just need to bring God into my life. (laughs) It's like, well, I'm very glad that you realized that you needed God into your life. But friend, that is not the gospel. The gospel is not about you adding God to all your other stuff, your interests, your goals, your problems. The gospel is that God has called us to surrender and submit to his truth that Jesus died for us on the cross. God has not, God has no interest in in entering your story. Your life and your story is part of his story. And so the problem with the Philistines is that fundamentally they think they can just add Yahweh's power to their false gods. This false religion seeks to manipulate God's power for personal and national gain. And they are learning the hard way. The God of Israel, the God of the universe is unemployable. You cannot employ him for your ends. You cannot employ him for your goals. Number three, false religion seeks relief without relationship. It seeks relief without relationship. Look in verses 11 and 12. Again, for the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing them, and those who did not die, the people who were left, were afflicted with these cancerous tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So chapter 5 ends by saying that the groaning and the cries actually went up to heaven. Now, this is the same phrase that is used in Exodus when it says, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, And the Lord heard from heaven. Their cries went up to heaven and he heard their prayers. So here they are crying out to the God of heaven and he hears their cries and the diviners have a terrible solution. It's superficial repentance. In their own messed up way, they want to make things right, but they also just want the pain to stop. You ever prayed a prayer like that? God, just make it stop. But nothing that they are doing to appease this God that they think is so angry, nothing that they are doing is actually prescribed by the Lord or is acceptable to the Lord. Nothing that they are doing is required. The only thing that is required is that they return the ark to Shiloh, get it back to where it belongs. And what they need is genuine repentance, not this superficial religious thing that they try to do. And listen, there is an open invitation in Moses' Torah for Gentiles to abandon their false gods and turn to faith to the one true God. And this goes all the way back to Abraham. Do you remember that in Abraham's story, he was not a Jew? He was not a Hebrew. The Hebrews come from him. He was a pagan. In Genesis chapter 12, God chose him. And what God said is that, I'm going to bless all of the Gentiles. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you and your offspring, your family. They're going to be blessed. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring people from all the nations of the earth back into my family. That's the promise. Remember Melchizedek, the priest from Salem. He's a Canaanite, but he's God's priest. Remember Moses led the people out of Egypt, and in Exodus 12:39, it tells us that a mixed multitude went up with the children of Israel, verses 48 and 49, anticipates that some Egyptians become sojourners and aliens, and they will want to join Israel in the Passover and leave Egypt. Moses' wife, a Midianite, Rahab the Canaanite, when Joshua conquers the city, she is blessed by the Lord. She's incorporated into God's people Ruth, the Moabitess, incorporated into God's family. Gentile nations and tribes submit to David's lordship. All kinds of Gentile tribes come in and they surrender and submit themselves to David. In the story of Esther's marriage to an Assyrian king, the scripture says, many of the people of the lands, the Gentiles, converted to Judaism. (laughs) Okay? So there has always been an open invitation for these pagan people to come to convert and become Torah observant family members, and the Philistines would be more than welcome right now to leave behind their false idols, their absurd man-made religion, and turn to the one true God. And this is their opportunity to experience true repentance according to God's prescription in Torah, but they don't. They just contrive some nonsensical religious guilt offering to appease this angry God instead of seeking relationship. Now, I want to say this, if you're an unbeliever and you're here today, you are welcome here. And we're glad that you're here. And I hope that this is the friendliest environment that you've been in in a very long time. If you're a believer here and you meet someone who is not a Christian, I hope that you are friendly and warm and welcoming to them. And listen, you are welcome here, but but our message to you today is to repent, to leave your life, your old life behind to come to Jesus who died for your sins, who is God's only acceptable sacrifice for your sins. Let me give you another point of application here. We must value relationship with God above our own comfort and possessions. Does God care about your comfort and your possessions? He does. He wouldn't send you the Holy Spirit if He didn't care about your comfort because He's called the Comforter. Jesus wouldn't make you a promise in the Sermon on the Mount Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all of these things will be added to you. Notice the priority is to seek first the kingdom, God's interest, God's agenda, God's plan, and the righteousness of that kingdom in Christ. And then God will richly supply you with all the things that you need. That's the Philistines' problem here. If they've they've just contrived a method to appease Yahweh's wrath, relief, but they're not really seeking true relationship with him. They don't want to come in and be incorporated into Israel as so many other Gentiles have. False religion just says to God, fine, I'll give you whatever you want. Just get out of my life. Leave me alone. Stop making things miserable for me. (laughs) Just let me get on with my life. And that's what they're doing. Number four, false religion can be enthusiastic and well-intentioned, but ultimately mistaken. Notice in chapter 6, verses 13 through 36, now, uh, 13 through 16, now the ark is returning on this cart with the new cows to Beth Shemesh. And the people of Bethshemesh, the Israelites, they were out there harvesting wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they were overjoyed to see it, their excited enthusiasm. The cart came to the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh and stopped there near a large rock, The people of the city chopped up the cart and offered the cows. They killed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites removed the ark of the Lord along with the box containing the golden objects and placed them on the large rock. That day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. And when the five Philistine rulers who were walking behind the cart, when they saw this, they were like, whew, let's go home. (laughs) Let's get back. Maybe things will get better. Problem solved, right? Not so much. We might first be tempted to think, what's the big deal here? They have all the elements they need for a good, raucous worship service. They've got everything. They've got cows, brand new, like young cows they can slaughter and sacrifice to the Lord. They have this cart. It's a brand new cart. They just can chop it up and use it as the fire for the sacrifice. They also have this natural flat stone there that they can use which archaeologists have found, by the way. They have this large flat stone that they can use in the offering to the Lord. They also have Levites who live in their city. And so instead of having to travel to Shiloh, they can just do the sacrifice right there. And you would think, what's wrong with all of this? We'll see what happens next. Verses 19 through 21, God struck down the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 people. These are Israelites. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom should the ark go? Where should should it go to from here? And they sent messengers to the residents of Kiriath-Jerim, saying the Philistines have returned the ark of, of the covenant to the Lord. Now come down here and please get it. Nobody wants this ark in their town. Because it keeps killing people, and so the answer to the question, their question, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, should be obvious by now. Samuel can. That's who, because he is the man who can stand before the ark and give the prescribed sacrifices in Shiloh that God has required. He is the man of God's choosing. His. Sacrifices are acceptable to the Lord because they are the ones that God has issued. They're the ones that God has commanded. And he is a faithful man. Unlike the previous priestly family, Samuel is faithful. His inner life matches his public profession. And what the Beth Shemites are doing here, technically speaking, according to Leviticus, is just as unauthorized as what the Philistines were doing. They're both unauthorized. And so in their curiosity, they make the mistake of treating the sacred object that represents God's presence flippantly, casually, commonly. And they made the mistake of thinking that their enthusiasm and their efforts, like their excitement over this sacrifice would replace God's authoritative prescription for worship, and it didn't. You know, in the Christian life, I wonder how much of what is happening in our churches in America today... I wonder how much of what is going on in our churches today is just Beth Shemesh worship. Honestly, it's well-intentioned, maybe even really enthusiastic and eager, very active, lots of things going on, but I just wonder how much of what is happening in churches today is just worship that God doesn't accept. I've been in, I've been in church services like this. I, I don't mean to rant. I, I, I really don't want to come across as cranky and fault-finding here. I have friends, I have cordial relationships with friends who lead these kinds of churches, so I have good dialogue with it's not that. It's just I've been in worship services, folks, lots of them that are exciting and loud and enthusiastic and very well-intentioned, very sincere. And if you look at all the songs that were sung, not a one of them sung about God. They just don't talk about God. They talk about how God makes me feel. And that kind of worship I think God doesn't accept. I think it's really subpar. I've been in congregations, I've been in churches more than you might imagine, where everyone in the church service, at least at one point in the service, just starts speaking simultaneously. Either speaking out in tongues, or prophecies, or shouting at the devil, binding the devil. I've been in these environments where I, as a young Christian, would stand there and see this chaos, this mess, and think to myself, am I the only person here that's read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? <laughs> because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, use your spiritual gifts. God has allotted all kinds of spiritual gifts to all kinds of different people. It takes all kinds in the body of Christ. But when you come together, you're coming together as one unified body. Lifting one voice and one heart and one mind to the Lord in worship. And your worship is to be done decently and in order. And your worship is to be, yes, spirit-filled, and yes, using spiritual gifts, but make sure that it's orderly. Why is that so important to Paul? Because Paul is a Jew. Paul knows Genesis 1 through 3, and he knows what the problem is. The problem is, is that sin has disrupted God's order. And when you come into church, if you come into an environment that is just disorderly and messy and chaotic, that is not honoring the God of order, the God who reigns supreme, who is before all and above all. Uh, Years ago in the 2020 pandemic, remember that? (laughs) The word that shall not be named, the virus that shall not be spoken of actually accelerated churches trying to lean into cyber church, lean into live stream church. And I don't know if you knew this, but lots of churches were thinking maybe that's the new thing, like that's the way in which church is in the future. And then you have these leadership gurus, these geniuses who were telling church leaders that's what you should do. You should start cyber congregations. And you can go on people's websites right now. I could show you churches where you go on their website and it says live church or cyber church. And I'm here to tell you that is an oxymoron. That is nonsense. That's like saying I'm a married bachelor. That's like saying I found a round square. (laughs) No, there's no such thing. The word itself, the phrase itself is incoherent. A church in the New Testament, it comes from the word ekklesia. It's two Greek words. Ek, which means out of, and kaleo, or klesia, which means called. It means people who are called out of their individuality to come together as a congregation to be one body, one family, one voice to the Lord. And so without physically meeting, without congregating, you don't have a church. Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because I think it is important for us to be as biblical as we can in the expression of our worship. Listen, the Bible doesn't specify everything. If you go down next week to that Lutheran church on the corner, some of you came from there, they will have a very different order of service, somewhat different, right? But what is that church going to do? They're still going to prioritize the word, if it is a church, a gospel-preaching church, the word in preaching, teaching, and singing. Those are the things that God has called us to gather around, the word, the table, the tank, the fellowship, the not forsaking of ourselves together, to gather, and the prayers. Last but not least, we gather to pray so that we could follow God's will and accomplish His purpose and do what He wants to do in His power to do his work. And prayer reminds us that we are not here to do our will in our power for our purposes. Prayer reminds us of our vulnerability. That's why five times in this worship service we we publicly pray. We lead you in prayer because it reminds us of the God who is above us, who is before all things and above all things, and it reminds us of the God to whom we give glory. So as important as they are, passionate Worship, sincere praise, is no substitute for prescribed worship. To be in relationship with God, we must worship Him in ways that are worthy of Him and prescribed by Him. And so as a body, every gospel-preaching church has to look at the Word and ask, are we being as close in terms of what the Bible requires of us, what the Bible commands and what it would commend as we can be? So let's wrap it up. We live for His glory by realigning ourselves under His sovereign reign. And rather than employing God's power, trying to manipulate God for our ends, or inviting God to join our personal adventure, we live for God. We live for His story. We've been called into His family to serve Him. And we must value relationships or a relationship with God above our own comfort and passion, and let the Lord worry about our comfort and passion. And we must practice enthusiastic, well-intentioned worship in ways that are worthy of God and that God has commanded us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the exhortation of this word. We thank you for this story. We thank you for encouraging us, for correcting us, and admonishing us. And Father, as believers here, every Christian in the room, Lord, we all want to commit ourselves to this. We want to worship in ways that are worthy of you and that you've you've prescribed. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to conform our worship, both personally and publicly, corporately. We pray that you would help us to conform our worship to your word. And we pray, God, today, as as we walk out the door, that we would be wholehearted biblical worshipers. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, do not wait one more day. You say, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why I'm here. I came with my mom or I came with my spouse. Or I just came alone. You don't know why you're here, but God knows why you're here, because he's drawn you. He's brought you in here to hear the good news. And the good news is that God saves us from our sin. And the way in which he saved us is by sending his one and only son to die for us on a cross and pay the penalty and pay the debt we owed. And the way in which we appropriate that gift we receive that gift is with the open and empty hands of faith. You can't do anything to impress God. You can't do anything to make yourself more important to God. All you do is reach out your empty hands and take the gift. And this one, I promise you won't want to give back. I promise you won't want to re-give this one. Because it'll change your life from the inside out forever. Will you trust Christ today? Trust it. Before you walk out that door. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank <music> you.